0: Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that hits rewind on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Rick Martin and this, my co-host, is Sarah-Jane Kemp.
1: Earth! I have to apologise this week because um, my voice is slightly—it's on the men now—but I've been ill for the last few days. I've been tucked up in bed. Um, you're meant to be eating all veggies and stuff like that, aren't you? But I haven't. I've been eating chocolate and pizza for the last four days. Well, feeling sorry for myself in bed. So I do apologise if my voice cuts out on this episode. But um, yeah, how are you?
0: I mean, nice for you to advertise for some sympathy on the show because you know what I'm like—I never have sympathy. Oh, I don't get sympathy.
1: Yeah, I don't get sympathy from anyone. You can—you can only try, can't you?
0: And you may notice we sound possibly slightly different this week. We're not in our usual um, recording studio, recording hub. We've uh, had to go a little bit DIY this week, haven't we?
1: We have, but it's okay. We're slightly echoey, more echoey than usual, but um, definitely nothing too, too out of the ordinary. So I hope you guys don't mind that.
0: And of course, minutes before we start recording, it sounds like someone on the floor above is doing some IKEA DIY work <laughs> and then a tea trolley rattles past. But we're going to kind of put these, uh, these bumps in the night down to it being Halloween week maybe so maybe they they kind of fit the theme I don't know spooky
1: spooky yeah it is Halloween tomorrow isn't it and um I'm actually going off to I've got to get better today because I'm going off to Barcelona tomorrow for a few nights to see my friend and um I've got a a pretty good gig lined up what gig is it gig it's a DJ called Greg Wilson and it's someone I've known for quite a long time um kind of first came across him he was big in the 70s in the disco scene and then kind of re-emerged in the Gosh, I don't even know my years now but I remember seeing him for the first time at Festival about 12 years ago or something like that um, and he is DJing at 2am which has really started like stressing me out a little bit um, in Barcelona so I'm planning on going to that tomorrow on, on Halloween um, yeah do you have any Halloween plans?
0: Uh, only to be uh, handing having sweets ready for the kids when they inevitably knock on the door so that house doesn't get egged I mean what I will say about our house when we bought it is It's got you know a pretty sizeable back wall and kind of back garden. The back garden's not that big, but I guess it's it's, you know it's big enough that it's got a shed. The front doesn't have a fence or or a wall or a bush or anything like that. So we're quite exposed. So I think, based on my childhood of doing trick or treating and what maybe me and some of my mates used to do to houses when we didn't get any sweets. I, I I see it as a night where you kind of have to defend your property almost in you know, a kind of Game yeah. of Thrones style.
1: Yeah, I'm not really. I'm glad I live in an, an apartment block where people can't get in, so so no one can come to my front door. But anyway, that's that's yeah. Halloween, um, and also Rick, I wanted to ask you what you think I should do because tonight I've got tickets um, to see a conversation with Mel C, which is happening um, right. in Soho House, and. I'm unsure whether or not to go because I'm not very well and I've got a really early flight tomorrow and it kind of doesn't end until nine o'clock and then I'll get home and I've got a pack and all that kind of stuff. Do you think a conversation with Mel C is is interesting?
0: I mean, I think putting my uh, journalistic hat back on, you know, a hat is the one that says press in a little card in it. Um, (laughs) uh, I mean, I think she'd be a very interesting character. I think, you know, there, there hasn't really been a Girl group like the Spice Girls, kind of since, has you know, you've had stuff like you know, Girls Aloud and Sugar Bays, and nothing that was such a cultural phenomenon. So, I think always someone like that is well worth going to, going to have a listen, just in case there's a little news angle that you can sneak out to the papers I know, for, I knew. for an easy 50 well, quid. Knew, I
1: knew you were going to say that, so um, I'll see how I feel later at my desk. But, um, no one, if you're around actually, I've got spare tickets so you can come, but uh. We'll see. Next episode, I'll, I'll talk about that and see if anyone came with me and if I went myself.
0: So if anyone can time travel back to the time that we put we recorded this episode as opposed to when we released it, yeah, you're welcome to come along. I guess I also wanted to reference, uh, Yeah, we're getting great reactions on social to our last couple of episodes, to so the Tom Clark interviews from The Enemy and then more recently the interview with The Twangs. So uh, yeah, we want you to keep them coming. So we should probably give out, we normally give out the social our social details and the accounts and that sort of thing where to find us at the end but should we do that at the top of the show
1: let's do it now uh so if you want to get us on twitter we are demo pod oh actually that's the same for instagram as well and if you want our individual ones on instagram i'm at i am sarah jane kemp and rick is on twitter mostly what are
0: you rick underscore j underscore martin and yeah we're really enjoying reading uh, your feedback and the things that you're saying about the interviews and we're trying to get less lazy with Kind of the retweeting and make sure we're retweeting out what you're saying, but yeah. Hang
1: on a minute, less lazy. We've never been lazy. I've liked every single tweet that's come in. Thank you very much. Maybe you're the uh, lazy one. Yeah. You're, you're the one. Rick's the one that does the tweets mostly because he's good at that, and I'm the one that is probably a bit more, probably a bit better at the engagement. So this episode's going to be about Stone Roses. This one's been bubbling along for quite a while, hasn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, the are you know the kind of a cornerstone of most Mancunians' music collections, and I guess I'm. I'm no different and uh, yeah it was kind of about choosing the right time to put this episode out I guess and I think uh, the key for me was looking for a decent like an interesting anniversary and obviously this year was the anniversary of the Stone Roses self-titled debut album coming out but particularly this month as in November it's the 30th anniversary of Fool's Gold kind of the I guess, when people think of Stone Roses, it's like the archetypal song, isn't it? Even though it didn't appear on any of their albums.
1: You love an anniversary, don't you? This is Rick's thing. I mean, I guess that's your music news history. But yeah, I love how you love and always know about anniversaries that are coming up. So yeah, it seems like a really good time to put this out. Um, And we've got a guy called John Robb, who Rick has known for quite a few years, haven't you? um, Yeah. Through your your enemy days.
0: I mean, mean, yes, he's... um... He's kind of Mr. Manchester, to be fair, in the sense that... I mean, <laughs> well, he's not you were from, Mr.
1: Manchester. Well,
0: I, I might have pitched myself as that. But yeah, he's um, he's not from Manchester, he's from Blackpool. But yeah, he's been a music journalist in the Manchester music scene for about 30 years. He famously did one of Kirk Cobain's early Nirvana interviews, worked for, I think it was Sounds, Select, some of the kind of early 90s music magazines. And he's also a, a kind of punk musician as well in The Membranes and Goldblade. So he kind of treads that line between being a music journalist and also kind of a musician. But more importantly... He is the Stone Roses. I, call, I would call it semi-official biographer. I wouldn't say they have an official biographer, but you know, he's he's followed their career from before they were even the Stone Roses. So essentially, the perfect guy to speak to about the past of the Stone Roses, how their debut album and Fool's Gold came together, uh, and potentially, you know, where they're going next. You know, John Squire, the guitarist, did say last month that the reunion was over, that they would essentially. Split again, so you know I do pose the question of whether he thinks they'll come back. But we'll come on to all that later on.
1: We will, because I was about to say we have got some music news, haven't we? And this is becoming a bit of a thing. Actually, we we start off the episodes talking about music and what we've been up to and all that kind of stuff. But it is becoming a bit more music newsy, isn't
0: it? Music news. That's, that's in absence of actually having a, a jingle.
1: We, I think you mentioned it last time, we're looking at getting a jingle because that would be quite funny, wouldn't it?
0: So should we crack into what's been going on in the world of music this week?
1: Yes, so you sent me, uh, I think we were having a conversation on WhatsApp and you, you suddenly just went... Hold hold everything, drop everything, T- Tame and Parlour have brought a new song out. Was this a surprise?
0: No, because news of this uh, kind of long-awaited fourth album has been bubbling away for a while. You know, their last album came out in 2015, Currents. I say they, I mean, it's essentially just Kevin Parker is now kind of Tame and Parlour, and he did produced Pond's most recent recent album but yeah there's been kind of snippets of footage in the studio that came out recently and people knew that this album was on the way but at the same time they're one of those bands that kind of drop music out of nowhere uh, and this is this was no exception
1: yeah I really liked it as well I've listened to it straight away I've, in true and actually I don't always do that but I listened to it straight away because I was at home not on my sick bed actually and I had some time but um I really really like where they're going with this um Actually, when I was living in, you're really quite a big fan of the Perth music scene, aren't you? And I've been to Perth a few times and I lived in Melbourne for a year, a few years ago. And uh, their second album, Lonerism, which is what you told me, it can't be in the first, um, always was playing in a burger chain I worked in called Huxter burger, burger. If you're ever in Melbourne, go and check it out, they've got delightful burgers. Um, and yeah, so it was, it's the Perth music scene had kind of got, you know, Melbourne's five, four or five hours away from Perth, it's quite a long way away, but it had kind of permeated the Melbourne music scene. Um, That's when I first heard about them, and I, my housemates went mad for them, and bands like King. Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Have you yeah. heard of them as well? Yeah, great name. King Gizzard and same, the Lizard same Wizard. Same scene, yeah, yeah. Yeah, same scene. So when I was living, they they played around the corner from my house, so I went to see them when I was living in Melbourne.
0: Psychedelic but... porn Crumpets, I think there's one called as well. <laughs> but yeah, oh, I don't have scene. heard
1: about that. But um, yeah, it's your, it's your kind of thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, Perth has been the epicentre of the music world for about the last five years. You know, centred on Tame Parlor. I guess I almost have a little bit of this idealistic notion that they all kind of live in these kind of commune style warehouses. They all kind of live in the recording studio and, and bands form and split within a few days. Probably not exactly how it works but you look at the rich tapestry and then you start with Tame Impala as kind of the starting point and you've got Pond who are like former touring musicians with them and then you've got Gum who's a member of Pond. You know, There is kind of a whole world of music to go and listen to that's kind of related back to, to Tame Impala. So, yeah, I'd love to go to Perth and actually see some of some of these bands in their kind of natural habitat. Although I'm going to see Pond in London uh, next week, so that'll be a few days um, after when this, this episode comes out, because yeah, they're, they're, they're for me, if not the best band in the world, at least in one of, in the top five, in terms of just the quality of the music they've put out in, in recent years.
1: Well, looking forward to hearing all about that gig when you um, come back from it on a future episode. In other news, um, I saw, so this, this has all kind of happened really strangely, so yesterday, Oh, the day yesterday yeah with boyfriend the day
0: before today oh I yeah.
1: sorry yeah, my head's all over the place yesterday was with boyfriend talking about what film we could watch and i don't know about you but i'm getting really bored of the choices on netflix and amazon prime and now tv at the moment and i was kind of saying i'd love to watch a really good sci-fi film can you remember independence day and then my mind just wandered to jeff goldblum um, and then last night I dreamt about him. I dreamt that. So I'm. Oh dear. <laughs> this is so strange. It's just gone down. So it's, good, it's just Dream it's just,
0: news. just am even div, weirder. Div, div.
1: So I dreamt about him last night. And I was in the house, and I was, I was buying a house, buying a flat in London. It was With a massive Jeff Goldblum? Flat. And Jeff Goldblum happened to be there, obviously, because I was thinking about him on in Independence Day. Um, so then I woke up this morning, came to work, and I was reading a, a newspaper article, and what do you know? Jeff Goldblum was like, this is really actually quite strange now. Um, and he's releasing a new jazz album. Stop that.
0: I, I want to rewind back <laughs> to this dream. So in my head, it's like, Jeff Goldblum is over. Um, uh Sarah, uh, um, I I I wondered if if you might um want to buy if if buying is such a a concept that you're involved with. Want to buy this 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 flat with 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 me? uh, I won't turn into a a fly, or I won't be chasing a dinosaur. Dinosaurs, animals from the past. You no, know this is
1: quite a good impression. I didn't know you could do. You had Jeff Goldblum down. Well, to
0: be fair, I've stolen this from a YouTube clip I found the oh. other week. where I was trying to find the clip of Jeff Goldblum's album, and I found this person doing an impression of Jeff Goldblum, and I've just nicked a lot very, of his material. Very, very good. There. You
1: should never admit that. That was really good, but um, I don't know what he was doing in the flat because it, I was buying it off a woman with a child. I don't know who they were. And obviously, they were moving out to buy a house, a bigger house, because they needed more space. And then all of a sudden, Jeff Goldblum just happened to be to be in the flat. And I was like, I mean, I'll take it, because I think he's wicked. So, um, But yeah, he's releasing a new oh, album. so you're
0: buying it off him, not like, with no, him? No, I'm not
1: buying it off him. I'm not buying it with him either. He was just there. He was
0: just there, OK.
1: I mean, maybe I'm... Maybe I was—he was advising me on what kind of. Well, look, to
0: buy. I think what you need to do is go back to Dreamworld and finish this story. So <laughs> next episode, hopefully, we have an update on where where this kind of why Jeff Goldblum was if, in your life.
1: <laughs> if only you could dream on demand. Um, so yeah, that was that. But anyway, what I'm trying to say, Rick, I know you're finding a lot of like hilarity in Myth. this, but uh, he is releasing his new jazz album on the first of November. It kind of took me a bit down a rabbit hole because he's got a song on there with Gregory Porter, and if you. Knew, if you didn't know this already, the the thing that kind of kickstarted um, Jeff's Jeff's I'll call him Jeff now first name first well he has to a uh, dream, so his, you um, do know it. his jazz career was a, a duet with Gregory Porter on the Graham Norton show and it kind of went all it kind of went crazy from there. But he did you know you know he started playing piano as a kid and then when he was 15 he um, he did a load of gigs around um, Pittsburgh which is where he grew up and um, He's been playing with his band for thirty years, so it's nothing nothing new to him actually. But anyway, Gregory Porter, um his album Water, his debut album Water in 2010 um, is one of my favorite albums ever. It was kind of at a time in my life, and I really like jazz. And I grew up; my dad loves jazz, and so I was kind of really, really surrounded by that music when I was a kid. I used to play the saxophone, blah 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 blah, and piano. Um, but Gregory Porter's "Illusion" also remember hearing that um, he sang it live on the Jamie Cullum show uh, on BBC Radio Two, and I remember being very clearly being in the car and just kind of every. You know, when you just hear those moments, and everything around you just stands still, and you and I was just so. Like deep, intently listening to this song, you could hear even when he was taking a breath, it was just the most beautiful thing ever. Um, That's
0: how I felt listening to the Taylor and song this week. Well, there we go. It's a stop everything moment, isn't yeah, it?
1: Yeah, stop everything. It just kind of like, oh, and you remember those moments forever, and that was a good nine. God, almost a decade ago now That God, mm. time goes really quickly it's crazy but Gregory Porter's got um, on one of uh, on, on this album he's got a song about coffee and as you know I love coffee I've just had a, cu- a cup of coffee now which is why I'm a bit more animated and I love one of the lyrics from that um, is it, the song's called Magic Cup and it's really upbeat as you would imagine it would be if you're talking about coffee and caffeine and he goes you give me insight into my mind looking into your black mirror before i pour you inside i just love that lyric so much because it's so true if you're a coffee drinker it's it kind of rings rings true but anyway there's probably
0: some innuendo in there somewhere as well well
1: i know i did read that reread it and think yeah it sounds a bit dodgy but it's he's talking about coffee
0: well look my just i guess to return to jeff i don't have an opinion on gregory Porter, which is unusual for me and you know fine is he the one that wears the hat he's the one
1: that wears the
0: hat yeah cool hat well down. done mate but um the jeff goldblum side of things i mean look he probably is a competent jazz pianist i i'm not i, I don't have enough of a, a wide knowledge of jazz i've kind of penciled jazz in to be something i get into when i get to about 40 like i definitively will you know i've been to Uh, What's that place in Soho, the kind of jazz cafe place? Ronnie Scott's, I've been to that a couple of times. So I'm kind of in training to get into jazz eventually, right? So this comes from a point of having almost no knowledge in, in jazz. And, you know, so therefore I don't know if he's a great jazz pianist or not. I just can't take it seriously it's jeff goldblum it's the guy who turned into the fly in the 80s it's the guy who keeps returning to jurassic park it's the guy who is the subject of a million memes on um you know on on youtube and twitter and stuff
1: but he's so i don't know maybe it's a a female thing or a male thing if you whatever way you want to look at it but i just think he is very he's a very attractive Older man. He's 67 years old. He's quite like a bit of a silver fox.
0: Wait wait, like- wait, wait, why Sarah. I must, uh, must uh, um, um, thank for you for, for for judging me on such kind of base and, and surface uh, surface qualities. Uh, no,
1: he's got charisma. You know. You, you can't argue with that the, mean- other, the
0: other question I have around Jeff Goldblum is he's done a little teaser trailer for this album which I keeps, I keep being targeted with on, on Facebook, I don't know if it's because Facebook listens to the, the words that you say verbally and then therefore shows you content based on that but at the start of this clip, he puts a record on and then sniffs his own fingers. And I, and I want to know why he's doing that. Do you
1: think it was a conscious thing?
0: I, I have no idea what's on those fingers. I I, I can only guess he's either trying... The,
1: the sweet smell of music. He's
0: either trying to smell the vinyl that he just put on the record because he likes to smell a vinyl. Fine. It could be a
1: new vinyl. It could be a thing. It could be you know when you open a notebook or even a carrier bag you get from the supermarket. So I've I've been known... I'm going to sound really weird now. I've been known to get a carrier bag of food and like waft it past my I walk out the shop because well, well, it smells
0: good. Maybe you've got more in common with Jeff Goldblum than, than we realise.
1: <laughs> I'm sure I do. That's why he's buying me a house. He's buying we'll, a house with me.
0: What we will do is we'll put the, we'll put the, the link to this clip of Jeff, the Jeff Goldblum um, trailer on the uh, description of this episode. And we'd love to hear on social what, whether you agree with me that this is just a bloody weird uh, clip. And what the hell is he doing? And what is he? It what is he sniffing like, on his finger? It
1: also looks like he's on a bit of a travelator. Did you see that? Maybe that's the camera yeah, work. So yeah. he kind of walks around his sofa and then all of a sudden, it's like he's moving but without moving. <laughs> it's quite funny.
0: Anyway, moving on from from Jeff Goldblum, should we kind of go into the uh, the kind of main course of, of this meal of an episode?
1: Let's do it.
0: Stone Roses, then. Um, so I know that you know it's a band that we are both fans of to to some level, some degree. Um, I've said before that they're kind of a cornerstone of my music collection. But what about you? Are you are you a big Stone Roses fan?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a massive Stone Roses fan. I really do like I, I like them. Um, where I really first came across them, I think, was obviously I'm from Nottingham, and my stepdad, hi Mark, shout out to Mark, um, uh, kind of moved in, uh, met my mum, moved in with us when I was a teenager. So quite an impressionable age, I'd say. For kind of like listen you know, absorbing what is going on around you in the household. And Mark was a massive or is still a massive um kind of Manchester music fan. So Oasis are his number one, but he also loves the Stone Roses and um the way he used to talk about them, yeah, I remember now with such passion and it was really good and he'd play around the house and we'd dance around and um, in the car and stuff like that. But um Yes, Stone Roses, but also I really like Ian Brown's solo stuff as well. So he's had more solo stuff than Stone well, Roses. Well, the Stone, Stone Roses, Roses. Roses. have only done
0: two albums, yeah. a smattering of kind of singles around that, uh, and there was that much mooted third album, which never came to be, which we'll talk about John Rob later. But yeah, so Ian Brown's had, I would have said... I'm going to look this up now, but Go probably on, about eight or nine albums would be my guess.
1: And uh, his, I think the fav- my favorite. I don't know why it's my favorite. I think it was a bit of a holiday romance. Um, someone on holiday once kind of introduced me to it when I was a, when I was a little lass. Um, is my star, and I know you like that song as well, don't you?
0: Yes, yeah, for me, it's one of his best solo tracks. Yeah, it's brilliant.
1: Um, I love it. But yeah, so yeah, I I do like Simon Moses. I wouldn't say I'm a super fan, but um, I mean you can't not. Like Stone Roses, if you go to an indie disco, you're going to dance to Stone Roses, aren't you? And you I are, went to yeah. a lot of indie discos in my time.
0: Seven Ian Brown albums I was one out, by the way. The Seven Ian Brown solo albums. See,
1: that is a
0: lot, isn't it? So, yeah, I think for me, you're right about Stone Roses permeating indie discos. You know, when I think of um, kind of my formative years, when you get to kind of 15, 16, and you start being able to sneak into the odd indie club, for women it's usually younger, you're normally like 13, 14 back in the day when you can. Get into clubs, but yeah, when I, you know, it's what I am the resurrection with one of those songs you kind of couldn't escape, and um, and waterfall and tracks like that. So, yeah, it's the, the, one of those bands that, even though you know, in my when I was kind of growing up through sort of Britpop and, and the early noughties being kind of the, the main time that I really got into music, they weren't a going concern. Ian Brown had a solo career, you know, John Squire was in the seahorses briefly. Rennie, you know, the drummer you didn't hear or see of ever. And that you know, that was kind of cut co- that's a little bit covered in what John Robb talked about later and Manny was obviously in primal screen. But yeah, as a band, they weren't a going concern. They weren't a band you could go and see live or see at a festival until, you know, they, they reformed.
1: Which brings me on to asking you quite nicely. So in, it was in twenty eleven, the reunion, and at the time you were a news editor at NME, weren't you? So you were right in the eye of the storm when that happened. So What happened? You know, talk talk us through what happened. So you know, you went to what when the you know there was a press conference, right? And that kind of yeah. So I I
0: might rewind a little bit further back than that. Yes, I wasn't long in the job, so I'd been um, promoted. I guess you could say from freelancer to news editor at NME in I think it was early October of 2011. And the press conference was literally within about the first two weeks of me going in the job. I mean, if you think about starting off as a news editor on a on a national music magazine. Uh, what better thing to happen than the, one of the biggest bands of all time to reform? Especially because there'd been such a kind of drumbeat of, of kind of chatter about this for years on end before. You know, I know Enemy had run multiple stories. Even even the merest hint of any of the four of them saying that they might reform, then Enemy were all over it. A little bit like with Blur. If you remember when Blur reformed, there was kind of a drumbeat of noise from Damon and Graham, or we might do it, or you know this might happen. But I think with the Stone Roses, it was the fact that. You know John Squire had famously done a piece of artwork a few years earlier that had said hell will freeze over before I reform the Stone Roses it really wasn't something that um, that, that was going to happen um, and then yeah within two weeks of me joining the enemy news desk as the news editor uh, that happens and yeah um, when you say there was a press conference initially we didn't know what the press conference was for in kind of typical Stone Roses style we one day just got this through the post this um, this invite to a press conference the clue that of what it was probably going to be was that it was very distinctive kind of paint. I don't know if you've seen some of the artwork that the band have done down the years, that kind of Jackson Pollock style kind of paint all over the place kind of, yeah. I'm not an artist, but it's, it's <laughs> I, I guess, what um, I'm looking for, quite experimental painting, should I yeah. say. Uh, and John Squire is obviously a, an artist as well. So, yeah, we, we kind of, we got the nod quietly from, the press officer who'd sent it to us, a guy called Murray Chalmers, that yeah, this was this was the resurrection, this was the Stone Roses uh, reforming.
1: So what was the, what happened at the press conference? Did you go, well, I assume you were sent if you were in that post at that point, and was it a bit of a weird, you know, kind of, you said you'd not been long in the job, was it a bit strange to suddenly be thrust into such a massive, massive press conference?
0: I mean yes, but I mean in in my kind of typical style, I still managed to turn it into uh, you know a bit of a circus, a bit of a Laurel and Hardy situation. So, yeah, I, I was given a front row seat at the uh, the press conference, and uh, Enemy got one question to ask, and I think one of my colleagues got in there before me to ask that, so I didn't actually get to ask a question word. But you know, I took my dictaphone along, put it on the front of the table as the band came in. You know, they got clapped in. I should say, actually, it was in Soho in kind of a private members sort of club, like little theatre was where they kind of held it. And, um, you know, I put my dictaphone down, went to sit back down in the seat. And as I mentioned there, it was in a kind of theatre. I didn't realise the seat had moved up. So I went to sit down and just went straight through. Now I'm sure somewhere oh in the my footage, God.
1: <laughs> I can imagine this. You clown. So in
0: in like the footage of um, of this press conference somewhere, you will see the band getting clapped in, and then me just disappear through the floor, and then kind of have to clamber back up into my seat. You know, it's like something out of a cartoon, and again, probably quite aptly sums up um, my my career. But yeah, no, it, it was it was. It's hard to really explain how, what an amazing thing it was to see these four guys who were never going to play together again sat in a press conference answering questions from kind of the assembled media. It was, oh, it was amazing. Sorry,
1: I'm still laughing at that. I've got a really good image in my head of you doing this. If anyone, if you obviously you guys probably don't know Rick, but those who do, you will understand. And uh, yeah, it's very hilarious to have that picture in your head. Um, so after that.
0: I mean radio silence, I mean the first thing was we wanted to do an interview with the band, obviously there was the press conference where you had the quotes but everyone had those quotes and you know the answer was no. It was almost funny to me at the time their PR, Murray Chalmers, won some sort of like PR of the year award and I thought well do you win that just for saying no to to interview requests?
1: It's about the mystique isn't it, so they obviously by doing that created such a massive uh, frenzy, I think that's a very good PR. I would say that because
0: I'm PR. But what it meant was that we, you know, there was a huge interest in the band and we, we had to find ways to write about what was going on, you know. So I think we managed to get a couple of photos from a rehearsal. We made a story out of that. John Robb, who again we're interviewing a little bit later on, um, you know, he gave us little tidbits here and there that he'd heard. But, you know, we we, we struggled, I guess, to move the story on particularly. Um, I think I remember when they announced the support acts for the for the Heaton Park gigs. We did a kind of spread on that and said it was... 100 days till heaton park and here's some interviews with the support that's bands. that's a long time it was it was that's a long, really time. long time yeah and i thought you know we, we did 100 days till heaton park as a spread where we interviewed some of the bands that were going to support the stone roses at the heaton park gig in lieu of an interview with them and you know it wasn't just kind of big names like you know plan b and and people like that they had on the bill and liam gallagher it was also uh like a local band called dirty north that manny was a fan of you know literally a band that were playing the pubs of manchester that were then going to get to play so that was an interesting story. But otherwise, yeah, it was was difficult until um, they did, again, in classic Stone Roses style, a last-minute warm-up gig in Warrington in May.
1: So that was a good, let me work this out, October to May, six, seven months, right? Yeah, exactly. From from the initial press conference to this warm-up gig, and you didn't know about that, as you say, until the day, so what happened?
0: So again, I mean, I've got a couple of, I had a couple of insiders uh, within the kind of Stone Roses camp. I won't embarrass them by, by naming them by name, but those who know me probably would be able to guess. And uh, yeah, I got the nod at about three o'clock, I think it must have been, that uh, I think the words on the phone call, words to the effect of, can you get to Euston now? Can you then get a train to Warrington, why? Because the Stone Roses are playing there tonight.
1: So he they, they did tell you that it was Stone Roses was... in which case you probably went, drop everything, how do I get to Euston now?
0: I mean, yeah. Look, I mean, and luckily, Euston's a few stops up the tube line. But that's not really the point. It's getting to Warrington that was the uh, the challenge, and it was a last minute announcement for fans as well. You know, that um, it was it was almost like one of those things you see in the '60s, like when the Beatles played in places and stuff like that. You know, the, it entirely took over uh, took over the town. And the way that fans got tickets, they had to turn up to the venue from four o'clock with a piece of Stone Roses merchandise to get a wristband to get into the gig. Apparently, a few of the locals had heard about it. Um, this is, this was, wasn't in, not in the days of social media, social media still existed but they were kind of sworn to secrecy in the sense that if this gets out we will cancel the gig so don't tell anyone because you have to imagine you know, if you're going to run a, an event at a, a venue like Power Hall in Warrington which is probably a couple of thousand capacity, people, people within that know, venue yeah. need to know and people yeah. in that venue probably know people in the pub and yeah. word gets around a town like, uh, like Warrington so they did well to keep a, a lid on it I guess.
1: So you got there I assume?
0: Yes, made it in time. And also, I should mention, we we managed to book into this little hotel in Warrington that charges about £40 a night. And you think, you could have charged us about 10 times that if you had a business brain on you.
1: I'd be, hang on, but if they, they didn't know, probably. Well, that's I'm the sure thing. They didn't I, know,
0: they... I, I got in there before they realised. Yeah,
1: they probably, yeah, they, how would they have known unless they're a fan?
0: And I pulled the same stunt on them, Like I think it was last year or the year before, where there was a big gig in Warrington. Uh, it's called Neighbourhood Festival that I think Cortina's and a few others played out and before, literally the moment that was announced, I checked whether this crappy little uh, pub with a few rooms upstairs was st- was still open, it was, and again booked a room for about 40 quid, so I've done them over twice.
1: Oh, I think you need to go and give them some business, Rick.
0: Well, I think I have, I've just promoted them, haven't I? I <laughs> what's I it
1: called? It, yeah, what's it called?
0: Uh, I'll have to look that up. Carry <laughs> on asking me questions while I'll look that up.
1: All right, so... Obviously, you said there was about 2,000 um, capacity. There was a very famous person there as well watching, wasn't there? Who was that?
0: Yeah, so Liam Gallagher you know, made it down, and I think that was, to me, kind of poetic in a sense, that you know Liam had actually wanted to become a frontman after going to see um, Ian Brown uh, play live, I think, famously. It was it was at Man- in Manchester in about 1990, 1989. So the guy that had inspired him to become a frontman, ultimately he was going kind of going to pay homage to and he, and he made a bit of an entrance it was a bit weird <laughs> like when he appeared on the Truly balcony Liam Gallagher style Liam Liam uh, Liam, yeah, Liam. Yeah. You think, just to remind you guys this is a Stone Roses gig yeah
1: yeah but they, you know Oasis were probably by that point just as big in their own right as the Stone Roses so yeah. I can imagine that that you know it's fine to do that it's great. The Patton
0: Arms was the pub by the way the, the Patton, Patton Arms hotel what, what? so if
1: ever you need to go to Warrington guys
0: stay, stay the at Pat- the Patton Arms the, pa- the, Patton oh, Arm. the
1: Patton Arms there we go job done so was it any good?
0: I mean, I think, that, you know, moments like that where you're seeing a band play for the first time in, you know, over 10, 15 years, it's not about whether it sounds right, it's, it's almost it's the spectacle of seeing them there, so, you know, was it perfect sounding, no, was it perfectly in tune all the time, no, but you'd expect that from a band that had only, you know, that re- only reformed a couple of, you know, six months ago or whatever and, and hadn't played a gig together in, in so, so long.
1: So what did you write about them, what was your angle after this? So I,
0: so I guess there was there was two sides to this. You get the online report up as soon as the gig happens. So that's kind of your, um, there's not too much analysis in that. It's just literally this is what happened and here's, here's some footage for YouTube of, of what it looked like. And then we got John Robb to write us a piece for the magazine the week after. He'd run into Ian Brown earlier in the day. How this had happened, we, we still don't really know. And he'd got some quotes from Ian Brown and got Ian Brown's permission to run them in the NME the week after. So we had the only quotes really that i think the band had, had actually given during the kind of reunion um period and it was a real kind of timeline of the day and you know cressa who was kind of the unofficial stone rose a bit like their best figure in sort of late 80s we ran into him got some quotes from him so it was a real kind of on the ground kind of just reporting literally just reporting what the day was like it was one of those those days that felt almost like a bit of a film so it was quite easy to do
1: it sounds like well that's also going to show the pull the anime had back in those days isn't it if they were the the only one they they were allowed to have the the exclusive as it were then at Go to Share that wouldn't happen these days would it and then they did the actual (laughs) the real reunion gig which is what people were kind of waiting for but you didn't go to that did you
0: so it was a few nights at Heaton Park yeah and I didn't go to that because I had a child due uh, to be born at that time that's usually my excuse for not going to (laughs) gigs and then yeah I did go and see them at Finsbury Park and a few festivals afterwards I mean at the press conference they said they were going to ride the reunion till the wheels fell off and the world tour just didn't seem to stop for them you know when when one run of gigs ended they seemed to put more on somewhere else in the world so um,
1: well that's good it gave a lot of people a chance to see them Absolutely. Well, I guess it's good to hear that you went and you were around for that. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. But let's talk now about the interview with John Robb. So, tell us a bit about who he is and why have we interviewed him.
0: So, as I mentioned earlier, yeah, he's about as close to being an official band biographer as you could get for the, the Stone Roses. Um, he's written kind of a famous book about the Stone Roses, uh, like the kind of definitive biography of the band. You know, he was there when before they were, you know, he knew Ian before he was even in the Stone Roses because he's a musician as much as he is. Uh, music journalist, and, and yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of been there at all the key points in their career. So in in lieu of getting uh, Ian Brown and Manny on the show, I mean, John Robb is kind of your, your next best step.
1: Well, he's done a lot of stuff as well, hasn't he? I mean, You keep sending me links of um, TV shows and, and social media posts that he's done or been a part of, and he does have quite a high profile, this guy, doesn't he? I mean, he's
0: he's, he's, uh, he's got a very good agent, let's put it like that, if he even has an agent, because he's always on Breakfast He could TV. be his own agent. And it's not always about music either, it's like the other day he was going to be on Good Morning Britain about veganism because he's a vegan, you know, things like that. He, he's, he's on speed dial for a lot of kind of the radio shows and TV shows and he's, he's a very engaging, a very engaging guy. I've known him um, since my early days of being a music journalist when I was kind of 16, 17 in the Manchester music scene and weirdly his partner is one of my old primary school teachers so I've kind of got a a vague kind of personal link, a vague personal link uh, term as well.
1: Oh, there we go. Right, well without further ado, let's listen to the interview. I'm looking forward to it and hearing all about the Stone Roses and his story as well, so um, let's go.
0: Yes, yeah, so here's John Rob talking on the past, present and potential future of the Stone Roses. So yeah, on the line I've got uh, John Robb, uh, you know, and the, the kind of way you introduce John Rob on these things, it's kind of a, a list as long as your arm. Music journalist, Punk musician, general mank about town, although he's not a mank because he's from Blackpool. Uh, and also, I guess, the semi-official biographer for the Stone Roses. I never quite worked out whether you were the absolute 100% official biographer, but I don't think you do anything 100% uh, official. Uh, how, how are you, John?
2: I'm fine, yeah. Well, it's interesting you made that point about the book because uh, uh, it's not, there's, there's no such thing as an official Stone Roses biography. They're not the kind of band that will have an official... Uh, biography, but they, they don't mind they're quite happy for you to do it without getting too involved, so that's probably the uh, the closest you're gonna get. which is what I, I can kinda respect about them, because they always kept the distance, didn't
0: they? Oh no, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And uh, just on a kind of personal level, you're you're sort of you're on tour at the moment with your band, although you've been kinda of sidelined with, with kidney stones. How are you feeling? I'm feeling better now, but god they hurt. <laughs> I don't know if anybody
2: listened to this has ever had them, but it's but you don't know what it is, it feels like your spleen's exploded. You just doubled up in agony, then I was thrown up all over the hospital car park. So like all that night, nice, it's like total pain. So I had to cancel a couple of gigs. But since then, nothing's happened. So maybe they've gone out the other side. Wait, wait. I looked them up on the internet. The weird looking things. They got those little sharp edges on them, like little starfish. But they're about two, three millimetres across. But the pain is where they get stuck in little tubes in, inside your kidneys and just sort of tears inside the
0: tube. Mm.
2: Really bizarre things. I'd, I'd heard of it, but I didn't realise how. Uh,
0: completely knackering they were but you sort of fight you'll be fighting fit soon and back on the road i'm sure oh yeah yeah
2: yeah all is cool now yeah i'm all right now yeah unless
0: he, unless he comes back in the next 10 minutes <laughs> yeah. well fingers crossed not and in terms of uh the reason i wanted to chat is obviously i mentioned you you're the kind of semi-official stone roses autobiographer and fool's gold uh is 30 years old uh this month in november so uh so, yeah, what, what are your, kind of your, your memories of that coming out and why do you think it was such a key release for the Roses? You know, it didn't appear on their debut album, but it's arguably the archetypal Stone Roses record, would you agree? I'm not sure if they have
2: a total archetype kind of track because there's two or three, was, but there's a few different rosy sounds, and there? there's the, uh, well, you know, the first album, the quintessential melody, sugar melody tracks, you know, those classic uh, late 80s bits of psychedelia, Fool's gold was like the next direction one it? it was the um, the loose funky jam version of the roses before it went into the more um, kind of kind of like the jimmy page version of the stone roses so in that period it was like three little different versions of it. but fool's gold was the first example of, of the move you know and it was it seemed like a really uh, i remember it coming out it's really exciting move forward i think i think because of the, that kind of time When everybody talk about indie dance or whatever, or the reaction to guitar indie music to acid house, this—I mean—the first Stone Roses album, you can hear there's little touches of that. Although nothing's ever very direct, you know. There's a couple of tracks where it really does a four-four bass drum. But when it's— but but Fool's Girl was their first deliberately written song for the dance floor. Even though you could dance to all the other stuff, this was at Stone Roses going doing their little funk thing. So so, and it was right as you know. Sometimes you get a single that comes out which totally captures the spirit of that moment. That that was one of those tracks, wasn't it?
0: And it's got a massively iconic video as well. If you think again, when I think of Stone Roses videos, I think of the Fool's Gold kind of psychedelic walking over the hills kind of video.
2: Yeah, and and also because it's you know it wasn't filmed in Ibiza. It's got echoes of Ibiza and that idea of the uh, the the, the kind of the party scene. You know, the Mediterranean, the sunshine. um, and also, everything was slightly tinged with psychedelia at that point in time because I think everybody was in a psychedelic state of mind. So, that, that I think a lot of people felt like what that video was showing. So, if you look at it out of context, you wouldn't be able to understand it. But at that moment in time, I think a lot of people, even in rainy
0: old England, felt like what the Stone Roses looked like in that video. And just thinking about the history of the track, and uh, you know, maybe we'll go into a bit more depth on that, in terms of wasn't it originally intended to be a B side or it certainly was like a double A side with what the world is waiting for right do you know a little bit more about whether it was ever intended to be the A side or was it was it written as a B side and was it kind of a jam that then kind of morphed into something bigger I don't know do you know the story behind it yeah
2: they're in the studio and it's definitely going to be the B side and what the world is waiting for was definitely going to be the A side because they talked about that being the A side for a couple of months and that was going to be the first track after the album and this is what everyone's waiting for literally and then, um, but I think well, a lot of people have different claims and how this story panned out. So I think um, uh, Roddy from Silvertones said he's in the studio, heard him do the track, said that's got to be the A side, and the band was still not so sure because I think they they thought what the world's waiting for was you know, which actually does make sense as your next single because it does capture what's on the album, and it's, it's only beating the album. We have to remember it wasn't like an instant hit, you know. It's it's only by about three or four weeks before Fool's Gold comes out and most people got the album because they only ever got to number 19 in the charts when it came out I mean it's just it's, it's quite amazing now after Oasis to understand they get to number 19 in the charts was quite a big deal at the mm. time for like an indie guitar band so the Roses like like they were big but they're like more like a big cult band than, than, than smashing the mainstream so so that, that's kind of the context of it so they put out the next single this is going to be the next step up so to put out like some 5, 6 or even 9 minute sort of loose jam, it's quite a risk, but I think with a bit of persuasion, and also because they have an innate understanding of pop culture, they realise they've got a track that completely sums up the moment. So, so it was it's outside intervention that probably made it into the A-side, although I think for a moment it's actually double A-side.
0: Yeah, I think it is, yeah. What, what, what do you understand the lyrics to be about? You know, There's a few kind of literary references in there, but I reckon that washes over most people when they listen to it, deliberately because of the way the track Kind of meanders. Um, it's kind of sort of tight and it's sort of unfocused but also quite focused at the same time, I, I almost think, the sound of that track. But what do you understand the lyrics to kind of be about? What are those literary references getting at, do you think?
2: I think I think there's probably slight disdain for capitalism, slight disdain for um, the, the fool's goal to success. Maybe even in pop culture, you know, here he's, he's worked six years for this, you got there, and it's all it's cracked up to be. Maybe, maybe there's those kind of elements in there. I mean, Ian's always come from a more left-wing angle, so it's probably all that in there as well. But it's, it's, it's kind of hazy, and it's, it doesn't quite say, it, it says a lot without saying very much, or, it, you know, so it's, which is a classic pop lyric as well, because I, I think the worst pop lyrics are ones where they, you just lay it all out in five lines. You've got to have a bit of mystery. A bit of too much focus can spoil a song. And it kind of suits the song as well because it kind of shimmers and, and shays, but a bit like what Fool's Goal would as
0: well. Mm. And in terms of, you know, to so kind of re- rewind a little bit back, further back than, than Fool's Goal, you know, like you say, it was kind of a bridge between their debut and their second album. But, you know, you were in um, the fortunate position. You were kind of around for their formation. You know, you were in bands, you were in Manchester in the Northwest at, at the time yourself. I mean, we're going back here to kind of, you know, 1980, I think, as far back as... The, uh, there's kind of the, the patrol go and the band that Ian and and, uh, and John were in. So, what are your memories of those times? You know, those times those kind of pre Stone Roses years and, and seeing them kind of come through the ranks, I guess, in Manchester.
2: Well, my period with them was just slightly after that. The first person I met out the Stone Roses was Pete Garner, the original bass player, and I met him in uh, 1981, 82. He used to work at a shop called Paper Chase. In Manchester, I used nice to take like, my fanzine there, and he was stocked fanzine because he's working in the shop. And he's a really good guy, and he's the first person I became really good friends with in Manchester. Uh, Johnny Marr's got that shop as well. It's the shop that Morrissey went in to get the New York Dolls record to give to Tony Wilson to try and get the New York Dolls on. So it goes. So that shop was quite a, a key cultural space. And it's quite weird now. We look at the modern Manchester, which got you know hundreds of examples of like independent culture At that, that time. This, I mean there's Piccadilly Records and there's Paper Chase and Paper Chase was actually like kind of a weird it was a weird space it, it kind of sold books and records and magazines and it was a bit of everything like probably like sort of left over from the hippie days in a sense so I got to know Pete there and he told me about this band that he was in and that was the first time I'd heard of the Stone Roses. and when I moved up to Manchester a year later uh, they were rehearsing next door to us and uh, we used to think day day looked a bit like handy looking you know because
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so so uh, so, so we, we kind of
0: slightly avoid them I didn't
2: even, even realise it was them at first because I didn't see Pete going in and out of the room with them and then one day I broke a guitar string and had to go in and get a guitar string and borrow one off them but they were dead friendly but they they thought that we were actually quite like, sort of like psychopathic looking <laughs> <laughs> but at that point in time we were bigger than they were we were like a top 10 indie band so we were like the big band well-ish, you know, where top 10 indie band kind of it. and they were like a, just a local band they were just a Bunch of lads in the local bands. and I saw Pete in the room. so "Oh God, all right, Pete. So this is the band you were talking about." And that's when we started to become friends with them. So I remember when they did the first gig in London as the Stone Roses, and I remember when they did the gig in Preston and all the early Manchester gigs. They were just like mates in a band, and I could we could hear them rehearsing through the walls of the rehearsal room and at that point in time they had a bit slightly heavier sound. It was it was their version of punk in a weird way. They they considered themselves and thought themselves as a punk band. I mean John Squire was a massive clash fan. He was just coming out of his thing where he liked well, the the Boy thing and he liked bands Out the meteors and the Angelic Cup starts. and they didn't really sound like those bands. I think they wanted to, but they couldn't make themselves sound like them. I think it's when Rennie joined that the sound actually changed. That's what that's the big change, in it. That's when it gave them a base to, to really move the sound forward and John Squire was learning fast on the guitar so doing more simplistic kind of punk rock barcore punk rock was never going to be an option with them and they, they just couldn't do it I've always been fascinated by bands who want to do a sound but can't do it you know like mm. the way Black Sabbath wanted to sound like the Beatles but couldn't because they were from industrial middle of Birmingham they didn't sound like Black Sabbath because it's just kind of in you you can't, you can't be the thing you want you, you are the thing that you are and that's the same with the Roses I've got great early Rehearsal tape. In fact, Rennie's first rehearsal was Stone Roses, where he discusses the future of the band, and they ask him, you know, he asks them, you know, what, what was the, what, what you what you're trying to do? What's, what's the idea of the band? They say, well, we want to be like a bit of a punk band. We want to get gigs with the country rejects, and the Angela Cupstarts, mm. and they definitely saw themselves in that kind of line. More probably, probably like uh, with a few of the different influences, but they saw that was that kind of little weird crossover between those bands, the mod scene that was coming up, and. Um, Kind of like some sort of street lads kind of bands, whatever, wanted a better word, you know. And, and there was like bands like Redskins around that point as well. So it wasn't all just shouty punk, it was all these different kind of versions of it. I mean, if you speak to Peter Hooten and The Farm, they were in, even though they didn't know the Roses then, but they were in that same kind of thing, you know, just normal lads trying to make music, coming out the end of punk, and that's what the Roses were originally. And then the, I, I think the drugs changed, and then everything sort of changed after that. It became more psychedelic, and they were they, they got more interested in the psychedelic scene. They were playing, uh, they even played support shows with that 86, 87 psychedelic revival bands, uh, but, but they were they were so out of place they couldn't find a place to be. And you know there was also that thing where they get man, uh, managed by Howard Jones, so they they were part of some weird sort of extension of the Hacienda. That's why Tony Wilson ever liked it, because when Howard left the Hacienda, he was seen it arrive or kind of set up. So they, they always had things going on. I mean, that's the thing. You always get local bands, and for years, they just keep rehearsing and nothing happens. But, it, you know, the Roses are one of those bands that everything always seemed to happen for. You know, it took a long time for to find an audience. When they went to London and they did their first gig, supporting Pete Townsend at the anti Heroin gig, and uh, Gary Johnson from Sounds was at the gig. Put them on the front cover of Sounds. Had a cutaway photo on the cover of Sounds in 1985, and a one-page interview after their first ever gig. I mean, that doesn't happen to anybody, does it? No. I mean, then, you know, then there's gaps for a year. You know, I mean, they're still trying to seek an audience because it's quite out of place. You know, that it's quite a ragtag from post. The gap between post-punk and Manchester. There's a lot of little cul-de-sacs and people people get lost on these cul-de-sacs. The big balance with the Mary Chain and the Smiths. I mean, that time, the Smiths was enough. You know, Manchester had the Smiths in your order, and that was, you can't have any more bands than that. That was the thinking, you know, outside London. So I remember the, when I, the first time I interviewed the Roses at early 87, and tried to get the piece into Sounds. It took three or four months for them to print the piece, because they couldn't believe there was a band that Manchester had a following of three or 400 without being known in London. So it's, it's a very different mindset now than it was then. I mean, Sounds is a great paper to write for, but like all music papers, it was it's it was in London. It's London centric, and the music business was very London centric then. And the idea that Manchester could sustain its own music scene with its own culture was an alien concept. I think
0: mean, it's interesting you mention that because having worked obviously on the NME in a, in a similar capacity myself, people don't know what goes on behind the scenes with the campaigning that you used to make for bands when you want you were sure that this band with a with the future of music. You know, I saw. Reverend The Makers last week, who I never thought were the, necessarily the future of music, but the, you know John McClure was an interesting character and they had some good songs. And I thought that still took me six months of campaigning behind the scenes to get them featured. And I think that's what music fans probably don't realise goes on, went on behind the scenes of music papers. And maybe the music media has lost a little bit of that in, in recent years of journalists who kind of, I used to call it putting my chips on a band. I'm putting my chips on this band. And if they go big, I'm going to cash in. And if they don't, then I lose my reputation, you know. Well, yeah, but, um, but I guess
2: it's it's seems to A and R, isn't it? Because it's only chips; it's not twenty grand or thirty grand. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it was that thing, wasn't it? You, I mean, you could you had to like have a thick skin and not really care what anyone else thought. So in the end, you have this position at paper where people go, well, "What happened at the end of the Sounds?" They always let me write about stuff, but they say it's just another one of your weird, funny banners, isn't it? So you have your own space to write about things that nobody else really understood. And that's how I got the first Navarra interview. People didn't really. Initially, they were looked on as being a disappointment for Sub Pop. You know, Sub Pop's been great, but here's, here's the first band sound. is isn't that good. But I said, no, I think that record's brilliant. So that's how I've got space in there. And then, it was the same to Roses as well. It was just another one of my funny little bands. So, but at that point, I Gary Johnson had left sounds, and there was, no way, there was nobody touching the band and then. There's one review, one that Liverpool think Penny Carney gave him a short night review. But, which I reviewed that gig as well. It's a gig when they played the Lars that's Sefton Park, the Larks in the Park gig, where, where I, th- I think that's the first, that's why I did the Britpop mention, because I, I did, because Sounds had done a cover about punk at the time called Britcore, and as a joke, I did this thing called Britpop, and it was only meant to be a joke, and it kind of stuck, but it was Lars headlining Stone Roses supporting, and I remember at the end of the gig, uh, Ian Brown jumped into the lake in front of the stage, and there was about 50 people there, you know, and I, I thought that the Lars of the band was going to make it, and the Stone Roses could get in on their slipstream, you know, at the time, everybody thought, in the north, you know, people, the, you know, the 25 people who really into music thought the lars was going to be the band that was going to break it. The fact it was 51 because Noel Gallagher still calls in the Manchester 50. Hmm. The people know every single gig that you would see every single gig watching every single band. The Lads were considered like, you know, Lee Mather's like genius. That's really going to happen, and the Rose is somehow getting on the back of this. But they're out of sync with that scene as well because that, that was their leather trousers and paisley shirt period, which has nothing to do with Doth. That was them. Um, I mean, even though Goth's got a lot of great music in it, it was more Creation. I don't understand how that Goth tag got stuck on the Roses because the Roses uh, were into Creation. It's prime Screen, Mary Jane, you know, leather trousers, pasty shirts, bowl cuts. I mean, that's the prime influence. And I remember at the time I was, I, I, was t- I told Alan McGee about them. I said, I think Manchester actually has the perfect Creation band in the city, there's Stone no Roses. And to his eternal regret, he missed them, but mm. he made up for it by getting an Oasis to me. <laughs>
0: And then you got Tony Wilson, who also passed them up as well, famously.
2: They weren't really Tony's kind of thing, though. And Tony did a lot of brilliant things in Manchester, but he was not—he was never an R person. You know, he was—he was, he was massively enthusiastic, and he joined people together, and he was very visionary. But it he was—he was not the person who should have been signed the bands to the label. That was Rob Gretton. Was the ears of uh, Factory? I mean, if he got onto Factory, Tony would have come up with a great concept and joined him up loads of people, and it would have been good. But at the end of the day creation would have been the perfect label for them because they were that the archetype creation thing that's slightly psychedelic but punk rock at the same time that 60s hand at the time it would have been 80s, 90s thing that McGee's always been good that you know the, the attitude of punk with, with the, the vibe of the 60s which is archetype creation so that would have been the perfect label As Factory it, it would have been a misfit on Factory wouldn't, wouldn't have worked at all I mean that that original record they made the first album which never came out the one that did Martin Hannett. It's actually quite interesting in a lot of ways, because that's what they that's what they Rosies as a factory band would have sounded like and it didn't sound that great, did it? it doesn't suit their sounds. The Martin Hannett recording bits the drums in little bits is it's not Rennie. Rennie plays every song different every single time. He's just a natural vibes drummer, he's not a mechanical, and um, crack rock drummer like Stephen Morris, who's uh, totally brilliant in that style. But it just didn't suit, Martin Hannett did not suit the Rosies. And if that record had come out, it would have been the end of the band. And it's quite interesting that they were confident enough to only put out the first single, then they pulled the album. At that time, no band would put an album on a sort of smallish, but moneyed, independent label. I mean, that showed that they had a vision, they knew what they were doing, and they knew they weren't ready yet. And they, they, they were prepared to wait for, for when it was going to happen. I mean, they, they are the most patient band ever, which which actually kind of comes to this day, doesn't it? I mean, here's a band that took five years to make a second album, could take 35 years to make the third album.
0: Yeah, I was, I was going to come on to that a little bit late, but you you raise a, a, an interesting point there about kind of you know the to me they almost burned briefly and brightly with that debut album. They were obviously many years in the making, but then, as you say, you know the debut album came out. Uh, you know they were top of the world at that point. You know they were, they were the band on everyone's lips, and then it took them five years, as you say, to make to make the second coming. So what, what's what's your memory of that? Uh, of that, I guess, that period, and particularly the, I guess, you were a music journalist at the time, who were probably knocking on their door every two weeks saying, how's the album coming along, lads? You know, what what are your memories of of that period and why it took them so long to to follow up with the second coming?
2: Well, they had a lot of problems, didn't they? There's record label problems, manager problems, internal band problems as well, some people (coughs) getting kind of waylaid by um, extracurricular activities or whatever, so it's What's it Manny always said? He said it was like everybody's on different drugs at different times. You can not get everybody to the studio all at once. Mm. <laughs> and also, they were older. You know, this is, a, this is a band who's 27, 28 at this time. And most bands, you know, your perfect band makes it when they're 2021. 20, they're the gang. They got that gang thing until they're 26, 27. Then they start, you know, uh, one will develop a really bad drug problem, one gonna have two kids, one will you know, one will get into, I don't know, Indian religion or something. They all go different directions, because 'Cause they're growing no, up no workmates hang around that closely, it's impossible. But the Roses had actually made their first album got it out of the point when they were actually growing apart from each other. You know, they they spent all those years of being the gang they ignored it in Manchester. So they, they were doing it when they were a small band building a performing in Manchester, but not a national thing. So by the time they made it it was almost too late. So they imagine really it's quite remarkable they held together to make the second album and also the mounting problems and i think there's also an inbuilt obsolescence i think there was almost a deliberate punk rock thing of like it's, if you get the prize just trash it you know i think there definitely does seem to be something you know like the reading gig at the at the end with the 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 reading nightmare there was there's almost like a joy in, in, in trashing the whole myth which which is something because ian's bad, favorite band is the sex pistols and there's something quite pistolian about that you know every time that they're handed the prize he'll just kick it into the ditch you know and it's 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 something quite instead instead of like just being you know U2 the biggest band in the world but it's not they're they're just there aren't they there's nothing exciting about U2 they announced a stadium tour
0: Mm. the fans would go they'd have a good time and everything but if the Roses came back next week it'd be
2: back on the front pages again because it'd be like the most haphazard like ridiculous career that any major rock band this country's ever had and that kind of makes it interesting, doesn't it? They're not, it's not a career, is it? It's not like a sensible band. You know, let's do an album every three years, World Tour Stadiums. It doesn't repeat itself what they do. I mean, even when they were doing those stadium gigs when they reformed, it felt like they were going to split for any minute. Or they going to get to the end of the set. Or they going to do the next one. You just can't, you could
0: not tell. There's no feeling of solid permanence about them.
2: And solid permanence in rock and roll. You make
0: a great fit, did they? No, no. And I was, I was going to talk to you about the reunion, obviously, because, again, this is where, I guess, as a, as a music journalist of a slightly different generation of yourself, obviously, came, I kind of came through, you know, reading your stuff and, and seeing you about town. And then, obviously, the Roses reunite in uh, 2011, and we're both there. We've both got a front row seat at The Resurrection at the uh, at the press conference. A story I don't know if, if you know about this, and it's... it's um, Obviously, you had the first question at, at, the, at the press conference. What you probably didn't notice that I I was sat in the front row. And I went to put my dictaphone on the table, then went to sit down again. With it being cinema seats, the seat moved back and I fell straight through the seat. And I don't know if any if this was ever captured on film anywhere, but uh but yeah, that 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 you opened with the opening question. I opened with the kind of uh, opening kind of sight gag almost of falling over in front of the band. But um, I mean how. uh how early did you get wind that this was potentially in the offing? You know, we all got that invite the week before to a, to a mysterious kind of press conference that didn't really say what it was. But you have your ear to the ground, far closer to the ground in Manchester than I, than I ever do. So how, how, did, how did you get wind that something was happening, that something was in the water? Oh,
2: about two weeks before. So I didn't know the months before. Because it, there's only about the band, about three of the people knew what was going on was amazing they're actually rehearsing in manchester and nobody realized because even though that's about what eight years ago that, that, even at that point in time somebody could have got a photograph up on social network in the early days of social network and just blown the whole story out but it's amazing you can actually keep something that a story that big that secret but i knew before the press conference because i knew there was a couple of people in town who were helping set up the press conference they told me what was going on of course, I mean, you, you always know stuff, you can't say anything, you know, otherwise you won't know anymore, will you? So it's, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so somebody had told me about it. So when I went down to London for the press conference, I knew what it was. Yeah, I mean, i know what it was for a couple of weeks, but but they, the, the way they, they kept that really nailed down is, is remarkable, you know. And it wasn't like they were doing it up a hill in Wales, they were doing it in town, they were out, they were, they were in plain sight,
0: weren't they? Well sometimes you can be hidden in plain sight, can't you? Because people think, well that, that surely can't be actually happening. Because like I said, they said when hell freezes over, uh the Stone Roses will reform, and then hell did freeze over, I guess. Yeah, well well, well John Squire's the one
2: who always puts the most damning statement on any rumors of reformation in he. So I mean uh he won't give you a quote. Manny will tell you the whole story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody can ever find ready. But anybody asks uh, John Squire, especially when he's doing his art exhibitions, he's the one who'll say this will never happen. Hell freeze over. There's no chance he'll do a piece of art saying never happened. But in the meantime, he's actually in the studio doing
0: it. But it's funny you mention about getting quotes from from Ian, because you know I think for me the the most exciting bit of the reunion wasn't necessarily the press conference, although that was kind of amazing to have a front row seat for, and it wasn't actually the Heaton Park gigs. It was the Warrington gig that came. Uh, Again, quite last minute. I mean, literally, I, I was on the enemy news desk at the time, and we got the call about three hours before the gig happened. So I had to rush for for Euston, head to Warrington. It was kind of their their kind of a, you know their warm up for for Heaton Park. From memory, it's maybe a couple of weeks before before the Heaton Park gigs. And again, you and I uh, headed up to to Warrington for that gig, and you did grab a few words of Ian uh, that we ran in the the following weeks enemy news section as part of kind of a roundup of. Uh, of the gig, so you know, you, you, for, to my mind, you were the only one who got any actual quotes from the band during during that reunion phase because they really didn't want to speak to the press, did they?
2: No, no, and no, I was surprised he let me use that stuff, but um, look, it was off the cuff, and I said it's all right to just use those, and he said, yeah, that's fine. Which is which is actually unusual isn't it? because I mean, I speak to them all the time. I mean, I'm, we're always texting, so I'm always in touch with them, I know stuff, but but you don't put it out. I quite like the mystique; you don't want to puncture the mystique, and the way. They float somewhere in the distance there's no point just chucking it all out and then printing it all i think in pop culture there's two ways you do it you, you either do like lee and gallagher where you just say everything all the time or you just say nothing and, and nothing nothingness builds up this incredible mystique which makes things seem far more fascinating and mysterious than they are so i did ask if i could use those quotes and that was the stuff about there weren't new songs and there was slightly psychedelic sort of tinge and, and from what i've heard there was some stuff. some stuff has been written but it's just never been finished off yet, you know I mean? I know not put two singles out, but to me, I, I think there's other stuff there, you know, I, think, I don't think those two singles were, were, were what would have been the third album.
0: Did you ever hear what their kind of management and press team thought of you kind of getting these quotes, almost, I guess, by, you got them by stealth in, in a sense, you got them because you knew the band, you had that relationship from kind of years ago, and they seemed pretty adamant, you know, other than the press conference, there was going to be no enemy cover feature. You know they would they would feed us a few tidbits here and there. They'd give us maybe a rehearsal photo, or they'd tip us off that certain things were going to happen. But it was always very clear, you know. And I was I was on the enemy staff at the time. There was going to be no interview. They weren't going to do any interviews. So did did they get in touch afterwards, or were they were they kind of in on you releasing those little tidbits of quotes? How, how did all that kind of come about?
2: I cleared it with them. I did it straight. You know, I said to Ian, "Can I use those?" And I said to Conrad Murray. The manager he's, he's a friend of both about us and i said is your ian said it's okay he's okay you he just just want you to know and he's cool as well you know so they're all cool
0: with him. i won't do anything behind any of their backs because they're friends you know it's uh mm. I'm, not, I'm not a
2: tabloid journalist i rubbish at it
0: you know I couldn't, <laughs> even if i had the biggest story in the world if, if that wasn't meant to go out there it wouldn't go out there i'm more of a writer than a journalist I'm, I, don't, I don't like to punctuate
2: i don't like to puncture the myth i like the myth you know I don't want I to fuck up uh, Conrad's job, Connie's job. It's a tough job that he's got, I'm trying to keep it all nailed down all the time, you know. And he's, he's one of the good guys as well, you know. He's, what he did with the Roses and the Cortinas and all the bands he works with, Cabbage and everything, he's done a great job, you know. That's it's an it's example how you manage bands, you know. You really look at you genuinely look after them, you like what they do, you guide them. It's, there's, no, there's no just fleecing the band for what you can get like old school managers. And he's mm. based in the north as well, so it's all part. Of, of the northern kind of family you know, you know you look after each other's backs don't you and that's that's important so if i had those quotes and they weren't meant to be used and somebody said can you not use those they would not be
0: used i've got to say it always amused me at the time that they had murray Chalmers doing the press and obviously you know a guy who's man- done the press for morrissey and some of kind of music's biggest heavyweights and he used to win kind of awards for his pr campaigns for the stone roses and i thought is that just picking the phone up and saying, yeah, we're not doing interviews today and that's how you win a PR award. Look, he's a nice guy, but uh, I always used to, used to kind of, used to kind of tickle me. Um, See, well, well,
2: it's not getting, the, it's, it's not what you get, it's what you don't let people have, you know, so, so he made, mainta- he helped maintain the mystique. The press conference, which was great, a great set piece, great pieces of pop theatre, he set that up, you know, so he put that in the Soho Hotel, that was his idea, to do it there, he, he worked out who to invite there and it, that was very well managed, Dan. And also to get, you know, when the band start doing the gigs, who's going to review them, where they're going to get reviewed, what do you leak out, what do you let? I mean, actually, it's far more sophisticated than it looks. It's not just stopping people talking about them. It's making people talk about them when there's not very much to talk about. I mean, basically, here's a band you couldn't hear, you couldn't interview, they're doing a gig in six months' time. And you, somehow he's going to keep a drip, drip drip, of press on it with no story. I mean, it's, <laughs> the gig's sold out. There's probably going to be a record, but we doubt it. Uh, that's it. And somehow that stayed in the press for ages, didn't
0: it? Mm. But you say that nothing really happened. I mean, the big thing for me that did happen was, uh, you know, at one point Rennie did did walk off stage and it was covered in Shane Meadows' film, but not really because he, he was more of a fan than a, than a journalist or a documenter. So, therefore he didn't really kind of zero in on um, zero in on that as an incident. I mean, you said before, it's one of those tours where the wheels could fall off at any moment. They actually said in the press conference, we're going to ride this until the wheels fall off. How, how close did the wheels come to falling off during that initial run of reunion gigs?
2: I, I think even if you look at the press conference, you can see the wheels coming off. You know, when uh, somebody asks what's, what's your favorite bands or something, it's a funny question. And they're all talking about, you know, I don't know, I can't remember what they said now, Mare Chain or, so, or something like that. And then Rennie said, "You too," didn't he? So he, he was having his own separate press conference, and he, he was funny because he is funny, but only it, it quite sarky. But everything he was saying, there's, there's obviously a, there's, a, there's a sort of party line that he was not adhering to, even in the press conference. So everything that Ian would say, Ian's very good at pop culture, you know. You know, he's always on Twitter and Instagram. Not always putting stuff out, but just watching and listening. So he knows, mm. he knows, he knows where he sits. He knows what he's doing. He's all, he's very, very good at. Um, he's, he'll, he'll probably listen to this. I mean, he's 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 on it, you know. So so, don't get nervous now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he he. Rennie was the only but, one who broke ranks before the press way. conference. From now now, yeah. if I remember, Rennie's just in a different
2: world. You know, he doesn't. I, I doubt he even knows what social networking is. You know, it's, mm. Mm. he just he just he was in his flat for years. Now he's in his house or whatever. And he doesn't know the party lines so he, he's, he's, an, he's, he's still the best drummer I've ever seen but he has no idea what the Roses represent in terms of pop culture or indie culture or whatever you know, it's, and, you know his favourite record is Van Halen and it's, he comes from a different place and that's part of his strength you know if you bring in different things into you know different DNA into the pot it's always going to be better but at that press conference you could see that he was talking he was singing off a slightly different in sheet than everyone else and I think that just kind of went on as the tour went on and on and on, so eventually the, uh, the schism in the band wasn't Ian and John, was it? It was Ian and Rennie because they both had different uh, ways of looking at what the Stone Roses was at that point of time. And who to say which one's right? You know, they're, they're both right in a sense, aren't they?
0: But I was going to say that actually, yeah. Now I think about it, Rennie was the only one who broke ranks before the press conference because we got—I can't remember who it was an enemy. It might have been Jamie Fullerton on Features managed to get hold of his mobile number or it's from somewhere. And he, t- he texts back with something on the lines of the Stone Roses won't reform before 9T or something like that. And the, we, ne- we never quite worked out what 9T a- actually meant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, literally the number 9 and then the T and we, could, we couldn't okay. figure it out. No,
2: it's, it's, it could mean a lot of different things. It could mean, it could mean 90 grand, it could mean uh,
0: 2090. <laughs> yeah. And then in terms of, you know, you touched on the the new material, you know, All For One uh, and Beautiful Thing were kind of the new material that eventually emerged a couple of years after the reunion. Um, I was a big fan of All For One, to be honest. I I, I thought that was that was borderline a, a classic Roses track. Everybody outside the media was, but at that point in time they weren't media
2: pets, weren't they? I mean, all that kind of scene of, of bands. I mean, I mean, God, you only have to look at the Cortinas. Never, no reviews, no radio, number one album. It's uh, it's like a world that exists completely on its own, outside the perception of what music should be. You know, the, the media is very, very narrow-minded, isn't it? They'll, the Guardian will do a four-page spread in a band that 42 people go and see. And that band could be great, but you've got to have the other story as well. You, you, it's good to have both, isn't it? And the Roses were definitely pushed away in that other camp. When the, yes, there was a the media reaction the they re really it but it's more because it was a story. It wasn't like, they, they were, they were never, I mean... I always thought when I, I actually interviewed Noel Gallagher years ago, and he had a great quote. He said, "Britpop was set; they set the stage for Blur, and then we turned up, and they, and they never forgave us." And in a sense, the Roses thing like that as well. I mean, they didn't they didn't really want these Manchester bands to come marauding down to London, <laughs> be like a Wembley final. Like, well, that was Scotland trashed Wembley or something. It's always looked on like a bit like that one. It's like these jobs coming to ruin everything. Instead, look at the art of it, because there's a lot of art to what the Roses did. So yes, so so they, they were definitely not. So when, when they did their
0: Reformation thing, it was a big story, but it wasn't like with totally welcoming arms, was it? Mm. But do you think the reaction to those tracks, or maybe the lack of reaction, is what led to them not putting any more material out? Because surely more material than those two tracks was likely to have been recorded around that time. You would think.
2: There's a lot of different rooms about that. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think maybe the reaction didn't help. Maybe. I don't think there's any more songs, although there was, there's somebody from the inner circle who said there was another song, but nobody's ever heard Heidi hair of it or anybody else ever mentioned it. There must have been scraps of songs and bits of songs and things that have been demoed and half finished and, um, you know, maybe the whole band on it, maybe three of them on a track or whatever. So it's, I mean, I, they did rehearse a lot. So in a rehearsal with other people who are really good players music will appear you know you're not going to just do the set in order then all go home you're going to have like you know you just get you get the bass out people start playing the bass line and there'll be a jam and something will be there and I'm sure John Squire hadn't completely run out of beautiful melodies you know mm. so I think there, there, there was definitely and I, I, you do hear people from the inner circle
0: saying there is bits and bobs of stuff floating about I think those singles they put them out in the wrong order I think and um, I think beautiful thing would have been the ones to do first, you know, because
2: that was that that was that was a really great track and it was definitely Fool's Gold Part Two. But at that point in time, you don't expect a band to be groundbreaking. It's just by doing good versions of your own sound, is it? If you're, you know, if you're really good at what you're doing, you hone that down. So that would have been the eye opener. But um, but the, the other track was great. I thought, it was, especially live when they played it, that was one everybody sang along to, wasn't it? So it was more of a live track, I think. It was. I'm not sure if it's even aimed. It was, it was. It was a little present to the fans. It was a celebratory track for all the fans at the gigs, wasn't it? I don't think either track though gives you any clues of what the potential album would have sounded like. I
0: mean, you said earlier, Rennie's one of the, uh, if not the greatest drummer of all time, one of the greats. And uh, I think it, for me, it's the drums that stand out quite a lot on All for One. If you listen, that is what that that propulsive drumming is really what kind of kind of drives it forward, along with that. I guess on borderline classic rock riff from uh, from John Squire. Yeah,
2: yeah, and it's, in a way, it's almost back to the early Roses, the, 80, the 86 Roses, just before they did the Sugar Sweet Melodies, the bit where they were still thinking they were like a punk band. And in a way, it's, it's not that, is it that far away from Slaughter and the Dogs, you know, one of, the, one of the prime influences on the early Roses, and a fantastic band, actually, another band that got, well, eight band that got written out of history, but with four or five absolutely classic songs. Um, you know so the roses you know i think all great bands like the beatles you, you're a lot of different styles you're not just one style so there's there is a little punk rock styles the roses exploring that track there's a funkier looser element they spawn the other track there, there would have been psychedelic stuff as well you know so it's all different types of roses I, I think probably looking back on it maybe maybe just going with the album and not doing the two tracks would, would have probably been a better statement because i think when you think of The Roses, you think of terms of the albums, the stories told by the albums. There were so many singles that came out so quickly after they sort of made it in 89 that the singles aren't stepping stones like Oasis singles. Each one is a stepping stone as they go up and up and up. With The Roses, it's, 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 if you ever have a conversation about The Roses, it's always the first album. And then a lot of people will say, in brackets, but actually I prefer the second album, but no one ever talks about it.
0: <laughs> mm. Do you understand the business behind Signing a, a a new album deal was not i mean wasn't it, it was more than a one album deal i I, I read it was potentially up to five album you know they signed an album deal when they reformed that then an album never kind of materialized so that gives you the hint that they were at least looking at something of of, of that ilk. do do, do, you, do, you have, do you have an understanding about how that how that happened and then how they kind of wriggled out of actually putting an album out i mean you understand the music business better than me as a, as a musician and a journo at the same time what 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 was the, what was the deal there? I don't think anybody's
2: ever spoken totally about what the deal was. There was
0: a deal though.
2: And they got dropped out of the deal at the end, did they? Just, obviously nothing was gonna turn up. But the numbers and what kind of deal it was, it's all hearsay, you know. What I mean I mean they keep it, I mean, people like Conrad, not going he's not gonna put that on on Twitter, is he? <laughs> <laughs> well, get close to the chest kind of stuff, isn't it? Of course there was a deal, you know, there, was, there would have been excitement. It would have been an easy deal to get as well, even for bands flowers, volatile roses tickets and the gig sold out quick it's worth a gamble can the band hold together to make a third album it will be a big album so there would have been something but when when it gets about two years later and it's pretty obvious that the band are, are totally speaking to each other or they're not really going to come up with this album then it fizzles out i mean it's 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 you know you go past the terms to the deal it's like you have to deliver an album within two years there has to be some kind of um, you know, you, you don't just do an album nowadays, you have to do a world tour, you got to promotion, You got it's a whole thing, and it? it's like, but when you've got a band that's sort of gone to ground again, and looks like it might have split up, and then suddenly re-emerges, that's not what record label's like, is it? it's too,
0: mm. too volatile. And then in terms of, you know, two years ago, the, they've had the kind of final tour, and Ian um, from the stage says, don't be sad that it's over, be happy that it happened. That was in, uh, in Glasgow. I don't know if that was symbolic because they played those famous, like, Glasgow on the Green gigs years before that. They're kind of seen as some of their, some of their best shows. Yeah, Glasgow on um, the Green, that's how I saw them, yeah. So, you know, that that's where the wheels eventually kind of do, do fall off, although they don't actually admit that that's what's happened publicly until, well, a few weeks ago when, when, as you said, John was accosted at one of his... Well, let's say accosted, he was doing an interview about his art and the journalist, like any good journalist kind of kind of asked the question. So were you were you surprised that it took them kind of two years to confirm that? Did you kind of think it was over in, in twenty seventeen with those comments from the stage? Given how volatile it is, they could have changed their mind the day after, couldn't they, ultimately?
2: I think with the Roses, nothing's ever over till it's over. I mean I mean John Squire, I mean yeah, right now it is over and he's probably thinking I'll never do that again. And then like you say, tomorrow, you may bump into Ian in the local shop or something and they go i've got a bit of a tune let's, let's go let's go do it again i mean it's it's that ad hoc it's that one it's really fluctuating all the time i mean at the moment it looks like nothing will ever happen again but they could just re-emerge next week with an album you know I, don't, I, don't, I think with it with john squire if, you, if you're doing a thing where you're promoting your art separate out from the bands and somebody asks you about the band you got to tell them it's over because you want to talk about your art. You know, you stick to talk about the band all the time, even though it's the thing that's paved the way for you to have the art like looked at, etc. But so, so, so maybe it's a mixture of being fed up with being asked about the band, with actually probably not done the band for ages. I mean, although I mean, there, there has over the last two years has been activity, but without the band being involved in it. So, rehearsal rooms are booked, but nobody ever turns up inside them. So. I don't know. It's it's. I've never seen it really happen with a band before. Because usually bands are like machines, and everything happens all the time. But the Roses, there's, there's always a space where somebody's trying to make it happen, but they can't get all the people to go to make it happen.
0: <laughs> so almost <laughs> that's what happened in 2011. Is that all the stars did align? And you know, when Ian and and John repaired the relationship, which at the time seemed like was the was the major kind of schism. You know, as you say, Manny's pretty easy going. I reckon Manny's probably the one that. Gets on, you know better than me because you know them personally. But you know, it seems to me, Manny's the Manny's the mate who gets on with all your other mates, if you know what I mean. Oh, but yeah, it, yeah. but it was that reparation of of you know of, of Ian and Ian and John back then. And then, like you say, if they were to run into each other, but do they do they run into each other? You know, that's the other thing. When you're at that level, they don't all live within the same vicinity, do they? It's not like they're gonna see each other down oh, the local, surely. They're, they're all in the north, you know. They're, they're, you know, they got places around the
2: rest of the country and things, but generally most time they live up here so I mean I, mean, I bumped into Ian Brown in Hume at the uh, West Indian place but next door to the post office about two years ago I mean they don't, they don't go around in, in VIP circles they're always out and about I mean the one you probably see the least is John Squire but he, he will be in town sometimes you know just going in to get, get stuff and they don't really live um, reclusive lifestyles you know Manny's at gigs you know ready red, will pop up here and there you know I mean, that last time I bumped into Rennie on the street was on the night of the uh, the gig. When I saw you, the massive gig at, uh, at the stadium, and he was walking to the gig from town. And I just mm. bumped into. <laughs> 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 so I mean, that's that's kind of the way they've always done it. They've never really done the limo exclusive thing. They they're kind of really well known, but they're sort of just that one rung down where you can actually get away being on a bus and people think look at that bloke he looks like really like Ian Brown he mm. can't him whereas with Leon Gallagher would be like look at that bloke looks like Liam Gallagher oh fuck it, Leon yeah,
0: it is Liam yeah. Gallagher yeah.
2: yeah because I mean the Gallagher's are just so famous although no one gets a ever in London and nobody ever thinks it's him so it's it's doable and they, they operate in that kind of world don't they so there is I mean God I mean what the, the odds of bumping into each other is not massive but it's not impossible
0: mm, mm. and I, th- I think for me my, my big prediction with them is that I think they probably will reunite, but they're kind of in kind of classic Roses style, I think rebuilding the appetite a little bit. Maybe it's that by the time they'd done, was it three rounds of live, I I make it three rounds of live gigs they did. You know, they did some in 2012, some around kind of 2013, 14, I seem to remember. I think Finsbury Park was where I went. I think I saw them on that kind of second run of gigs. Then there was another run in kind of 2016, 17. And I suppose if you're not playing lots of new material and you are just playing the classics, there's a sense that, People could get a bit tired by it, and actually, the way to build that momentum again is just to go to ground for however long they need to go to ground for, even if it's 10 years. Yeah,
2: I think um, there's only so many times you could play that set, you know. And it's um, even though
0: it was great last time, I think it was amazing. You come around again and do it. I mean, a lot of people are going,
2: Well, that's just the hits, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it was you know they did get off for one there so there's like one new song in the sets but that's not a lot for that amount of time is it and be, I mean yeah they could probably get away doing festivals they could, there was definitely um, there definitely would be a headline Glastonbury option they could get away with but it's like um, did how many stadium you start doing less stadium gigs and it starts to go down don't it? if you do the same thing over and over 10 years yeah it wouldn't make a difference because it's like a family reunion and it? it's for every every, every mad person that ever gone to the Roses over the last 30-40 years has this kind of wild convention in manchester for about 40 50 000 people turning up god i'm still alive you're still alive so that, that works but to make it um to, to, to make it something of a band like that which should be a creative force you can't think there has to be another album really doesn't there, there has to be something to, to give another twist but how how you can sit them all down to make the albums another another matter in it and also they're not hungry are they you know it's not like it's not like, you know, a lot of bands have to tour to pay the tax bills and, and to just, what, well, to, to survive, really. You know, even quite big bands there's not a lot of money in it. But, but the Rosie's definitely have the money now. And that, that's, that's, that takes a lot of motivation out of it. But I think, that I, to me, I don't think they actually reformed for the money in the first place. I think to sit in that room, like Ian Brown said, who said to me, like, you watch those other three play, it's quite mind-boggling, you know, just because it's so so fantastic you know that when they were jamming they were jamming those rehearsal rooms so there was music getting made in a sense and he was sit there in the corners watching them, just go wow i mean they're, they're great players but they fitted the chemistry was so perfect you know and the tragedies when you play the chemistry in it more than anybody having their memories in, you know like polished or something or people making loads of money chemistry is everything in it you've got brilliant chemistry and you see people got great chemistry playing together there's something magical about that and that's probably the greatest waste. The other greatest waste is that you know, drummer as good as Rennie. You just don't, if you don't reform, we're not going to see him again. I mean, how many songs did he actually record in his whole life? About 18 or something. And and the stuff with the rug which never came out properly. So it's, it's you know, all those, that guy's in his 50s now and he's probably got the, the smallest discography of any major musician of all time. And it's, you know, if you, in a hundred years time if you wanted to Hear him playing the studio. There's hardly anything, is it? That's a tragedy, I think.
0: No, I, I, I totally agree. Totally agree on that point. I think just to wrap up, and you know, I think with the roses, this is always the, the fun thing to do. What would be your big kind of roses prediction then? If you're going to make an outlandish prediction for for, for what's next for those guys, what, what would that be? As outlandish as you can, as you can almost imagine.
2: I, I think never say never again. Yeah, I, I, I just think it's so volatile. The situation will change every ten minutes, and change in every conversation. It would not surprise me if, if five, ten years, they came back and this amazing album just appeared out of the blue. You know, but they've been sat on for ten years. They, they, they may even recorded half of it already, gotten about it, and then went back to it and go, oh, this is really good. So it's and it's, and it's all hearsay though We need little scraps of rumours. You can't make a prediction because it's a quicksand. There's nothing solid there at all. So at the moment John Squire is definitely not doing it is all we know you know Rennie's gone to ground Ian's got Ian's after his last solo album has pretty well gone to ground as well he's been quite quiet and man he sort of pops up now and then doesn't he so that's that's all we know so my guess as a guess would be it's too tempting to go back to to something that great you know the idea being in that small room playing together the chemistry's so perfect and it's so magical even if even if you had problems personality issues with each other because you've grown older and got different it's so hard to not do you know it's, it's purely just to play together again what would be the pot of gold not, not to make a massive album not to sell out a stadium just to just to play that you know that the something that, that fluid that brilliant which so few bands can do you know that 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 surely has to be the most magnetic pull for a band like the
0: roses well, I, I, I live in hope as, as much as you, John, and w- watch this space, I reckon. But, uh, yeah, I think we'll we'll wrap up there. And, uh, yeah, cheers for your time. Good good luck getting back on the road. Oh, yeah, no, I'm sorry now, yeah, yeah. Cheers, John.
1: All right. So you talked about the potential future. Do you think they're going to come back?
0: So my gut feeling is, is probably no. You know, I think, as John Robb referenced in his interview, even in the press conference you can see the sort of fractures within the band and it maybe weren't the fractures you would expect to see because the main relationship that needed to be healed was between John Squire and and Ian Brown, that's ultimately what apparently split the band in the 90s, but actually it was Rennie, the drummer Alan Wren, who kind of appeared on his own planet almost during the reunion, you know, there was the stuff in the Shane Meadows film where they, where he kind of stormed off stage, so I, I suspect that if they were to reform, that it might be that Rennie wouldn't be involved. But in in, in all honesty, as John said, you can never know with that band. You do know. you
1: think that would matter, though, if he wasn't involved?
0: But would it be the Stone Roses? This is the eternal thing with when people talk about the Smiths, for example. You know, if the Smiths were to reform, I, I can see a time where Morrissey and Johnny Marr would potentially get on, but it's whether they would ever have back Mike Joyce and Andy Rourke, uh, the bassist and drummer, um, because they sued Morrissey and Marr in court for unpaid royalties. So... You know, it's it's, but it's, would it would it ever be the Smiths if it was the if it was Morrissey, Marr, and two session players, and similarly, would it be the Stone Roses if you had Squire, Manny, and Ian Brown with a session drummer, and probably, arguably, it wouldn't.
1: Well, it'd be interesting to hear what you guys think, would it or not? That could be an interesting discussion to have on social media.
0: Do you think that they would reform, Sarah? Do you want them to reform?
1: Yeah, I think so, purely because I haven't seen them. Um, as we said earlier, I was a bit too young the first time around, and the second time around, I don't know where I was or what I was doing, but I definitely wasn't going to the gigs. And this was quite a long time ago now, so it's you know the press conference was in 2011. That was eight years ago. That is probably not that long really in in the scheme of things but it is quite a long time and I think I'm always a bit sceptical with these sorts of things like if they cut, get back together I always think oh they've run out of money and they probably need a bit need a pound need a pound need a pound or two or a million um so that's why I think they probably might do in, in the uh, distant future but not anytime soon I, I mean
0: that's that. always the cynical view isn't it that someone needs to, cynic, pay, yeah. needs to pay for a divorce or pay for a, a fine or whatever or pay the mortgage off but um I don't know. I, I don't think the Stone Roses are one of those. One of those. They bands. probably
1: don't need to. They don't seem to me as they're not really, you know, fame or press hungry, are they? And I don't. I don't. They don't strike me as the kind of band that would need to for their ego mm. or. Money. I mean, I don't know how much money they've got in the bank, but that's the only reason, and that's why I say that is with those, with this, with these guys. It's the only kind of thing I I could think that they might need to do it for. But
0: and, and I think if it was going to happen, go. it would have to happen organically. You know, the last time that the story of the reason why the hatchet was buried was that they met at a funeral. You know, Ian and. John Squire happened to be at, um, at the funeral of, of you know a mutual family kind of acquaintance, that and that's happens, what brought them together. You know, it's
1: weird. I've known lots of experiences of that when in um, in my life where people who haven't spoken for years and years and years go to a funeral, probably like a family member, and all of a sudden they're like, "Life's too short for this."
0: puts things in perspective. doesn't yeah, It does. It? it does. I think if they were to come back, and this is probably where we'll wrap up on on this point, they would have to come back with new material. You know, they signed. A new album deal when they came back and they ultimately only returned with two singles as me and John uh, discussed in the interview there and I think if they were to come back and do another big reunion it would probably have to be tied to an album and will they ever produce that album I mean the they've liquidated the touring company Um, who knows what happened to the record deal that they signed and whether they've had to give all the money back or whatever
1: I've got an idea why don't they just come back as a hologram tour
0: Oh, here we go. We're back. We're back to that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think we're gonna come A back Stone to that. Stone Roses holograms. hologram tour. <laughs> I think it's you know it could happen. Maybe, maybe, maybe when none of them are around anymore, that then we could. Hopefully, that's not anytime soon. But you know,
0: I can well see that. To be fair, what you said there of of you know in fifteen, twenty, fifty years time that bands just come back as holograms can totally see that. It's already coming in. But whether they come back as as humans is very much up in the air. But yeah, we'd love to hear. Uh, from you guys the listeners what you think would you like to see the Stone Roses come back do you think it will happen uh, get in touch on our on our social channels we gave them out at the start of the episode we'll give them out again it's demo pod on Twitter and Instagram I'm Rick underscore J underscore Martin and on Twitter you are
1: on Twitter I'm at I'm Sarah Jane Kemp it's quite confusing isn't it but mm. they're all they're plastered all over that uh, demo tapes one as well so if you did want to get in touch with us personally then it's not going to be hard
0: absolutely and yeah if you wouldn't mind giving us a five-star rating on iTunes that really helps with uh, spreading the word and getting us up charts and all those sort of things
1: but we better go I've got a bit of packing to do for Barcelona tomorrow so I've got to get my work finished and then pack up Um, but until next time uh, have a good week or two everyone
0: yeah see you next time